0: everyone and welcome back to Let's Talk Parks. Thank you so much for joining me this week. This is exciting, right? Because this episode is actually being released on the first day of Parks and Recreation Month. So, yay! That's exciting. Um, Thank you for all that you're doing out there. There have been some really awesome creative programs that just are super cool and you guys should be proud of yourself for coming up with these ideas and making it happen so quickly and adapting things and just being flexible and creative and all of this. And so, yeah, let's get it done. Let's make it happen. You guys are awesome. Um, We're actually sharing a lot of your stories and ideas that you guys put on your own Instagram pages, like for your agency, over on Instagram for let's talk parks so we we'll, we'll we follow a lot of you guys we'll try to um, reshare them but if you ever want a f- you know free reshare we're happy to do so just tag us at let's talk parks and we would be happy to share what you've got going on we want to see it so as we get into this month we are gonna do some other fun things we're gonna try out some reels on Instagram. We're going to try to do some new questions and try to get to know you guys better. Um, But we're also going to hopefully we're we're actually starting this month off with an interview which you know as over the summer we haven't had as many just things get a little bit busier so it's harder to schedule. But um, I just was really thrilled to be talking with Krista Pinsky this week. She is someone that I've looked up to for the longest time not only just because she is amazing at getting things done. She's like a a master planner, um, literally. And she also just is like, she's very organized. She's very task oriented, which that's speaking my language, but she's also a very effective communicator and she knows how to read the room. And so she's one of those people in the meetings where when things get off track and You don't really know where things are headed anymore. She's like, wait a minute, let's pause, reflect on what we're talking about and what we're actually wanting to get done and what the results we want to have are. And then she really just makes you think and makes you pause and makes you kind of reset um, and go start again in the right direction. So I just really appreciate her perspective, her communication style, The way that she approaches not only everyday communication and organization, but also those tough conversations and giving feedback. Um, I've never seen someone give feedback with more grace. Um, So I'm really excited to talk about some of those things that I admire most in her and actually give her own perspective on how to influence in your agency. So we talked actually about power back This time last year, actually, before Becky Talks Parks turned into Let's Talk Parks. And that was with Kara Kish. And we talked about how power, you know, as you go throughout the ranks, you're given more power. And how do you manage that? And what do you do with it? and What does it look like? And this conversation, although it seems very similar, actually went in a totally different direction and we talk about how influence is something that's earned um, and power is actually a very different thing and uh, it's very much about It's very much about how influence in your organization starts with being a better listener and really observing the situation, learning more about the people that you work with and that you supervise, and figuring out how best to get the message across. So often we think that we have to bulldoze our way in order to get what we want or to make our perspective heard, but In the meantime, we're actually losing out on a valuable opportunity to bring people into the mix, to let their voices be heard, to help other people have influence. And at the same time, you're building trust and respect and rapport. So I really hope that you enjoy this conversation with Chris Jopinski. I think that you will. I think that this is a really valuable conversation for anybody who is Looking to have more influence, no matter what position or role that you're in right now, um, this is just a good one for the books. So, hope you enjoy. Let me tell you a little bit more about Chris Chapinski. Chris is currently the co-owner and senior principal at Green Play, spanning over 20 years, and she's built that upon a strong foundation of 24 years in parks and recreation administration, with nearly half of that as a director in, in the city of Boulder, Colorado. Parks and Recreation Department. She's armed with a teaching degree in addition to her Parks and Recreation Administration degree, and she's passionately helped move our profession forward, taking advantage of opportunities to serve in leadership and faculty positions ranging from nonprofits and foundations. As a certified Parks and Recreation Executive, a fellow of the American Academy for Park and Recreation Administration, a member of the National Association of Park Foundations and the NRPA Rocky Mountain Revenue and Management School. She has done so much throughout her career, and she continues to help organizations remain relevant in our ever-changing environment. She lives in Colorado with her husband, Mike, and motherhood has been the greatest joy in her her life. So thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoy this episode. Until next time, let's talk parts. And welcome back to let's talk parks. This is Becky Dunlap here, and I am thrilled to be joined with Chris Strapinsky, who is a senior principal with Greenplay, and has been someone that I look up to for the longest time. And I'm just really pleased to have this conversation today with her about how to have more influence in the field of parks and recreation, but also within your organization and as an individual and as a leader. And so I'm just really thrilled and I'm going to go ahead and uh, let Chris introduce herself and tell us about her story, her career in Parks and Recreation, and then what she does today. So thank you for being here.
1: Thanks, Becky. It's it's great to be here, really. I appreciate you having me on. It's a topic that I, I really love <laughs> and I love talking about and, you know, how um, we influence has been a big part of my career, I think along the way. And you know, I was really fortunate to start my career with a degree in parks and recreation because back when I was that age, <laughs> I didn't even know the degree existed and it really hadn't been there for very long. So I got the parks and recreation degree, but with that and a lot of substantial extra effort, I was able to also get an education degree that went, went along with that. And it kind of turned out to be a defining moment for me. You know, I was Parks and Recreation all the way. I didn't really have any intention of becoming a teacher, but I soon learned how understanding how other people learn would become so important during my career. Um, When I was in college, I was able to work part-time as well, serving my hometown Parks and Recreation department. And, you know, we developed and supervised youth gymnastics and skiing programs and, and along with the girls basketball and softball. So I was kind of getting a feel for what this parks and recreation thing was all about. So that's kind of my first defining moment when I went to college, but then thinking about my career and looking back, I, I thought, you know, I can kind of describe this in terms of defining moments for me because I think there were a series of them along the way that really shaped how I look at our world and at our field. So another defining moment for me was when I was in college and I did a study abroad program, which included an internship in London, England. And talk about getting out of my comfort zone. You know, I was a country girl from upstate New York and going to a big city in another country uh, was a big culture shock for me. And it was a six month program. And, you know, once I got there, I knew there was no going home, so I had to stick it out. And I'd never really been anywhere except for you know a couple of driving trips up into Canada and down into Pennsylvania where we had some relatives and one plane trip to Florida at that point in my life, but this trip really broadened my horizons and I discovered a lot of things about myself, including uh, my own independence. Really, it, it I gained courage from doing that, and realizing I could do something like that, and I definitely got the travel bug. <laughs> So so that kind of led to my next defining moments, and those were the opportunities I had when I first moved to Colorado. So there was an internship opportunity there, and I had to do a second one. So the first one I did, or the first job that I ended up with uh, came out of that internship. I worked for the South Suburban Parks and Recreation District in Colorado and then quickly moved my way up through the Foothills Park and Recreation District. And I just was completely enamored with Colorado and this newly discovered world of working in parks and recreation. So two things happened while well, I worked for those districts, which I think really helped shape my approach to our field. The first one, when I was at South Suburban, I was able to attend the NRPA Director's School. And at that time, this it was connected to the business school at the University of Athens in Georgia. And I met a network of professionals that became colleagues for life. You know, it's a common thing that happens when you do something like that. But what really hit me was listening to the keynote address from the head of the business school at our closing banquet. And I really began to understand parks and recreation, not just as a social service, but as a business. And it changed my whole way of thinking about our profession and, and you know, not losing our sense of mission in any way, But adding to it, the the things that you think about when you think of business, the accountability, the transparency, and the fiscal responsibility. So in turn, that largely built my foundation for later work in resource allocation and cost recovery, which I do a lot of now. And while I was at the Foothills District, uh, this is gosh, back in 1985, we were able to develop the first of its kind community wellness program. Uh, We had a donated building turned into a fitness center, insurance paid memberships, a community wellness foundation, and we got attention from NRPA. And we did that by hiring a non-parks and recreation professional from the Minnesota Heart Health Institute as our wellness administrator, which created uh, really a true partnership with the health field. And these are things we talk about today, trying to get them to happen. And, and you know, this was back in 1985, but we knew we had the people in the places, uh, parks and recreation centers and, and people were coming to us. They loved parks and recreation and we knew how to program. And this administrator brought with him the expertise we needed for our credibility, and, you know, more the health field side of it. So it really set me on a path of defining and promoting wellness and, and partnerships through Parks and Recreation. So eventually I went on to become the director of Parks and Recreation in Boulder, Colorado. This was a great experience for me, and it came with a lot of challenges. But during that time, I was really fortunate and had the opportunity to participate in a long term development program. With quite a few of my peers and it really was an exploration of how the world works through kind of the lens of how we relate to each other as human beings and that's largely through the spoken word you know how we talk to each other and and that is how we communicate and i was just totally fascinated <laughs> and so it was it, it wasn't just something I stepped out of my world to attend on my own, and then I struggled, like we all do, to bring back to my agency with no support. Um, nor it was was it something that I could just understand academically and try to hang on to as long as I could. This experience was different in that it was a, an experience of learning to to learning to understand. In other words, not learning or listening to people to match what I already knew from the past, but it gave me permission to try new things and new approaches. And we talked about things like making our intentions public and practicing things over time and being held accountable to doing things in a way that would bring more value. And so I spent several years practicing through that program And now I like to think of it as I just practice on my own all the time, (laughs) continually trading up for a new understanding of what will bring value to our organizations. And much of this really had to do with influencing and allowing myself to be influenced and often calling to mind a a very handy adage that anyone who's spent much time with me has heard at least once, You, you cannot both alienate and influence at the same time. And I'll probably talk about that a little bit more later, but that brings me to another other defining moment. And of course that was my big move to consulting where I've spent the last 20 years. I saw an opportunity and felt a really personal need to make a difference. And it felt very different to me at first, but before too long, I realized that my new role was to provide a resource that agencies don't have. So it's an expertise gained from my experience as a director and the perspective earned from working with so many different types of agencies on so many projects and so many different circumstances that they were in. So it was it wasn't that it was such an easy move for me. I was actually scared to death kind of walking away from a steady paycheck and that, but but I drew on the courage. I knew I'd survived earlier in my career and it's been a roller coaster of sorts, but always something new around the corner and, and very rewarding work. So that's kind of a quick sum of defining moments in my career path that got me to where I am today.
0: I love that. And I've heard bits and pieces of it, but it is it was really nice to hear some of the defining moments that you've had. And it's funny how those early career experiences are those yeah some of sometimes the most defining moments, you know, your internship experiences, your study abroad experiences. And a lot of times that happens, you know, in college or right after where you have to make a lot of decisions, but then, uh, over time you continue to gain experience and meet new people. And it all just kind of accumulates to, to a great career. And um, so I really appreciated hearing your story. And I wanna kind of circle back to what you were just talking about, this, this phrase that you say, and that I've heard you say many times. And to me, it is a phrase that I get it as soon as you say it, but I want to learn more about, you know, where this came from, what it means to you and how you see it playing out in our organizations and beyond. And um, again, this phrase is you cannot both alienate and influence at the same time. So can you maybe tell us a story or two about this or (laughs) just tell us where this came from?
1: Yeah, well, you know, first of all, it it came from a a great friend and colleague, Ron Seacrest, who was a, a very wise parks and recreation professional who turned city manager. And I actually worked under him as a city manager Uh, So he was my boss at the city of Boulder and and he gave this one to me. And, you know, I'm not exactly sure when, but I'm sure it was during a very teachable moment when I was thinking pretty highly of myself. (laughs) And, and, uh, you know, I, I soon realized it wasn't really very hard to find a circumstance where it would apply. So we're trying to influence people. We're trying to get them to go along with something that we're thinking. We're trying to get them to listen to us. And if the first step we take is to be condescending or put them down or or judge or do something that puts them off or alienates them, we've really given up our opportunity to influence them. So if, if you think about it, we all believe, at least from time to time, that you know we have the right answers and other people are just idiots. <laughs> well, that might be a little bit strong, but you know, since we, we tend to judge ourselves by our intentions. We know what's behind what we're trying to do and what we are trying to say, but we tend to judge other people just simply by what they say and, and do. And so we don't have a. a very even playing field to begin with. And we don't always spend as much time trying to understand what are they really trying to do? What is their intention? Maybe they're not going about it the same way we would, but there's probably something really helpful there. So instead of just quickly judging what they have to offer and and determining it doesn't measure up to what we have to offer, you know give them the chance and that that means we have to really listen we have to listen to learn from them what they're thinking and what they're trying to accomplish so in essence we're letting them influence us i had a, an incident that that happened at the when i was at the city one of my peers <laughs> that i worked with had had a bit of a reputation at the city it was challenging difficult to work with kind of person and You know, one more thing had happened, which directly impacted my department. And so I began, you know, I I was furious probably at the time and thought, you know, this just isn't right. This shouldn't be happening this way. And so I began writing down all the things about what he had just done and what was wrong about that and what the right thing to do would have been. And, And I thought I was being very logical and very objective and trying to keep all the emotion out of it. Um, So I wrote this all up and then I thought I'm going to seek the advice of one of my colleagues who went through this program with me. So I went to that person and I said, would you just take a look at this and tell me what you think? And so he did. And he looked at me and he said, well, are you trying to influence him? Are you just trying to make him mad? Or do do you really think you're going to change what he's doing by giving him this? And I thought, oh man, he is so absolutely right. And this is the program we all just went through and and realized, however, in that case, that you know, I don't think I can influence him. He just is the way that he is. So in fact, in this case, I think I am just trying to make him mad. So needless to say, I never sent it to him, (laughs) but it was good exercise for me to go through, but a, a very clear story of I'm not gonna influence him. If I'm alienating him to begin with, and there are so many stories. If you stop and think about it and just observe what's going on, whether it's you or other people and watch how they ask for information or watch how they set the stage for conversations or, you know, trying to get people on their side. And there's a lot of alienation that actually occurs in some cases. So you've got to be genuine about wanting to uh, both influence others and having others be able to influence you as well. So it's a it's a conscious decision and it takes practice. And I mentioned earlier something about making it public and what I mean about making something public when you're working on your own to, you know, become a better person or develop yourself, as we might say, you you will accelerate that experience if you can share it with at least one other person, and that's all I mean by making it public. Let one other person know that you're working on this, and have them help you remain accountable to it, so they can point out quick turnaround feedback whether you're violating your own intention of trying to, um, you know, make a difference in the world and. and really communicate with other people.
0: I think that's really important because so often especially as we're going through our agencies and working your way up it can feel very lonely, I think. And when you are trying to influence others, it it can feel very isolating and you don't know if you're communicating in a way that make, you know, that ends up with the results that you want. And so I think setting that intention is really important. Look, what you were just saying about making sure that you assume the best in others, but then I think having that accountability partner is something that I know for me is very lacking for other people is very lacking. And we just kind of feel like we're on our own. And so I kind of just want to kind of back up and talk about what are some of those common reasons that we would want to influence others in our career or I guess in our life in general?
1: Mm -hmm. Well, it comes back in part to what I said earlier about this is how we relate to each other as human beings. um, It's how we communicate with each other and we need to be open and, and observant about what's going on in those communications. It's really in our DNA as humans to want to influence people. I mean, you think about a child and it, just the how they influence by smiling. You know, They get a different response from someone when they smile at them, and, and they learn that very quickly. But for humans, the way I learned it was we need to influence like we need to breathe. It's just part of being a human being. Um, we're you're always interacting with other people. And you know, everybody likes to be liked if even if they. Sometimes say they don't like to be liked. I don't, I don't necessarily buy that. But we're in influencing all of the time. And everything we do causes a reaction from somebody else. And sometimes you're being intentional about it and sometimes you're not. But it's influencing, it's making a difference, it's causing a reaction. So it does work both ways. And we need to leave room and be open to being influenced by others. So they, what I mean by that is they have to know when and where it's appropriate to influence. So, you know, for example, in Parks and Recreation, it's, it's really common to reach out to community members to get their input about a specific project or the future of the Parks and Recreation system or whatever it is. And we take great care when we um, go out to the public to make sure that they have a brief history of what we're working on. They know what has already been decided. They know what those givens are, if you will. They know what we're seeking right now and in what ways we're seeking that information, who's responsible for the process, who's gonna make the final decision and when that's gonna be made and what are the next steps. That gives people everything they need to know about being the most influential they can be in the moment so they can see where they can engage with that process. If you don't put all those pieces into place, what you're doing is, in a way you're setting them up to be alienated because you're letting them decide what it's time for. And often that doesn't click with what you're you're trying to do. So they may be giving you input on something that's already been decided, not understanding that that isn't what you're looking for. Or they may be way ahead and trying to give you input on something that we're just not ready for. And really what that leaves for them is in order to determine if they were successful in influencing you is, did you do what I said. And that's not what we want when we go out after public input it's no different when you're working, you know, with your team or one on one with somebody else. So. You know, for example, if, if you're trying to determine a um, location for a new recreation center, and let, let's say the location's already been decided and you're working on the building program, if you haven't let people know in advance the location has already decided, somebody's going to go back to that issue and they're going to be sorely disappointed to, to learn that you're, you're gonna discount their information because that's the wrong conversation to be in. And so you've wasted their time and you've wasted your time. So we want to influence for various reasons. And we wanna we want influence all the time, but being intentional about it, you can actually set up a process that will create the environment to get the influence that you need at the time that you need it.
0: Okay. So let's go into some of that. So what do you think are some of the best ways to influence others when we're having, um, you know, maybe those conversations that aren't always easy or maybe they're high stakes conversations. Um, We'd love to hear your input on that.
1: Yeah. Well, those high stakes conversations, you know, usually people are coming from a very emotional place and they, for various reasons, often have already decided what they think is the right solution to the problem. And there's, there's two issues with that. Um, one is that you, you need to have some, find some common ground. and So you have to have some common goals. People have to understand what is the problem that you're trying to solve. And if you don't have buy-in, the second part of this is if you don't have buy-in for what the problem is, it's gonna be really hard to come together on what the solution for the problem is. So you're gonna look for common ground and you're gonna express and and try to find common goals that both of you share. And that comes down to figuring out what are they committed to? And how does what you want fit into what they want or their goals? um, And how can you help solve their concerns along the way? So it's inquiry about um, whatever the issue is and what's, what makes this important to them? A second part is you need to give people information if you want them to help you. So, you know, if you just put out a solution and you've probably thought through it, you've probably based it on data that you have. But if they've never seen that data, or maybe they wouldn't even agree with it, um, it could just sound like the worst thing in the world for them. So, you want to. Um, they, they need to know and you need to know what are the rules for this input? What is the best opportunity for them to influence the process? What's already been decided? Who makes those final decisions? And you've got to make a commitment to keep them updated on progress and when decisions have been made. Um, this goes into you know bringing closure to certain parts of it so that people can move on. And don't get stuck in those places where um, decisions have been made already. Um, I I know I mentioned a little bit earlier listening to learn and that's as opposed to listening just to hear. You know we all went through that training years ago about you know if I can repeat back to you what you just said I will prove that I have heard you. Well the problem is it only proves that I've heard you. (laughs) It doesn't Prove that I learned something from it or that I understand what you were saying. So, you know, people are talking and if you're in your head, you're, you're having your own conversation about what you're going to say next, you're not really listening to what they're having to say. So, again, it goes back to finding where are their common goals and what commitments are you willing to make toward that? What are they willing to make toward that? What are their concerns? Uh, what happens if we do something, what happens if we don't do something, all, all good questions to be asking. asking. So not listening alienates, because it, it puts people into a fight, flee, or freeze mode when they feel you're not listening to them. So that's, it's an alienation. In a fight mode, you know, they get angry, and they're not going to listen to you, and they're forming their argument or their all-important monologue, which they're gonna give as soon as you stop talking, but they're not listening to what you're saying either. They wanna be right, just like you want to be right. And I've always believed that you can be right or you can be happy. So pick one, because you're probably not gonna be both. So, so not listening and wanting to be right makes, just makes a lot of people unhappy. When another response is that flea mode, And with that, people just feel like, man, you're wearing me down. You're sucking all the energy out of me. I just want out of here. And instead, I'm going to talk about this at the water cooler or with the other people who probably can't do anything about it. And and so that doesn't do anybody any good. Or they get put into a freeze mode. I'm not saying anything more. The way you talk to me, it makes it too painful. You know, by not understanding what I'm saying, or by matching what you think I'm saying to something you already know, you're just squashing my idea. You might have embarrassed somebody in front of their peers. It's just not worth their time. So, you know, a classic example is when you ask somebody for their ideas, when they've brought up an issue of something that's not working very well for them currently. And, you know, you might even begin by praising some of the ideas that they have about that, but then you kind of cut them off at the knees by saying, well, we've done that before and elaborating about how well what they did actually worked in the past. And if eventually they end up discounting your original concern because it's an old problem and we fixed it already, you know, yikes. (laughs) You can keep somebody in a freeze mode for a long time with an experience like that. They're afraid to speak out or they just, Don't feel like it's worth their time, so you want to be careful that you're being genuine about listening to people and and hearing what they have to say and understanding where they're coming from.
0: You know what's interesting about this is that when you're saying all of this. It's kind of opposite from what my original idea of influencing others is I think of it as me in control saying what I need to say and everyone else is just like, yeah, I'm on board with you. <laughs> but what I'm hearing is that it's more around figuring out where the other person is coming from and listening to them and then crafting your response from there.
1: Yeah. That makes me think about the, what did they say? We've got two years in one mouth for a reason. No, Listen first. <laughs>
0: yeah. So. You know, I think it's important as we're kind of learning about some of the ways that you've learned to influence over your career to think about a lot of our listeners who may not be at that executive level role yet, and they're aching to be a leader in their organizations. They want to influence. They want to bring up those ideas and they want to be heard as well. But do you think that anyone has the power to influence, you know, who, who holds that power. And then, um, when you talk about being influential and, and, um, having those skills, how critical is that when you are in those executive
1: level roles? Yeah, I, I firmly believe that everyone can and does influence and it goes back to as humans, you need to influence like you need to breathe so some of it is very active and some of it is very passive or unintentional influence you know you may walk up to somebody and you know say good morning and you've had an influence on that person that you might have no idea how impactful that was i've heard s- stories of um, directors of departments walking down the hallway and not saying hi to a single person in their office, that had an impact and it was a long lasting impact. So that was unintended. I don't think they that was their intention to do that, but that's the impact that it had. So we're talking more about you know active influence in the way that you ask that question. Right? You know, what do I have the power to do? Do I need the power first and all that? I don't think you need to have power in order to influence. Just I mean, just for me, it's an absolutely not. I've seen people with a lot of power based on the position they hold who really can't influence hardly anybody. They end up powering their way through, and they might win on some level. But I think they're losing out and making a, a real difference because they don't have anyone behind them or working with them. They've just taken that power; they haven't earned it. Real power is something that you earn, and it's not given or taken, as the case may be. And uh, ultimately, I think you have to be able to influence in order to gain power. You know, people start looking to you, and they they give you power but you've earned it. It's, it's not something that you can just say, oh, I've got power now, I can do anything I want. So effective influencing is a skill and it's a really valuable one. And power in my mind is not so much a skill, it's more of a result. You know, we've all heard stories about how receptionists and janitors hold some of the, yet to use old terms, <laughs> but they hold some of the real power in organizations your position doesn't really matter. It's your ability to understand the needs of others and share ideas about how to meet those needs. Uh, you, you identify others who have a stake in the outcome and get their thoughts. You let your initial thoughts be shaped by new information. We're not all about selling outcomes. We're about seeking solutions to common problems. So we're, we're not gonna you know, feel like we have this power so I can say whatever I want and everybody's going to line up behind me. Reminds me of another leadership thing is um, followers create leaders, period. I don't know if that was the name of a book or something that came out of a book, but, you know, you just, you can't demand that people do things and expect any long-term outcomes from that.
0: Mm. I love that. I love what you said around power. Is not a skill. It is a result. That is something that I'm underlining because I think so often people wait until they're in a position of power to do anything, but in reality, that influence is what's important. And that's a skill that you can be practicing over time. Mm -hmm. And so let's talk about kind of this uh, last piece that you just talked about and um, one phrase, I don't know if I heard it from somewhere or not, but like, and it's, a, I'm really just kind of paraphrasing from what you said, but it's like, you cannot influence in isolation. Like a lot of times when you try to power your way through things, you end up uh, isolating yourself and alienating others. So all of this is really becoming more clear in my mind, but you know, I, I know that you've probably seen instances where someone has tried to influence others, but then the exact opposite occurs. They end up alienating the exact people that they want on their side. So let's just kind of dive more into why that happens and what are some common ways that we unintentionally alienate others?
1: Yeah, I, th- I think, and some of this might just be reinforced, reinforcing what I said earlier, but getting people on your side takes a bigger common or shared end goal, there has to be some vision out there that everybody can get behind. And you might all go about it differently, but sharing how and why you would go about it differently will get you to some better solutions to getting to that end goal. So when we make an assumption that there's a shared future or this shared common goal, and there really isn't. You're going to have a really hard time getting there. So you've got to articulate what what we're all after when you're trying to influence other people to get behind, you know, what you're thinking. It's really hard to sell somebody on a solution if you haven't sold them on the problem. You know what we've all heard. You know we're coming up with solutions to problems that don't even exist sometimes. So. You, if you don't define the problem, you're going to have trouble. You know, your world is not their world. And I think we forget that very often. We, They just have a different experience going on, what's happened in their background, how they see things now, how they think things will turn out. So when we tell people we want their input, sometimes our own insecurities, cause us to tell, tell them that, oh, we've already done that or thought of that. You know, I need to be smarter than you because I'm your boss. I'm in that position of power. Well, that's crazy in my world. (laughs) They wouldn't bring up an issue if it didn't exist in their world in some way. And so even if you don't think it exists, they're seeing something that you don't If you squash their idea before it can even take shape, you've just lost a great opportunity. So if they're saying there's something going on, work to figure out what is it? What is it that you're worried about? What is it that's concerning? What is it that's actually happening? And instead of writing it off as, oh, we've done that before, we fixed that before. Another one is using what I call fast as an operating principle. And what I mean by an operating principle is it's something that's at work in your organization and and fast gets rewarded. The more quickly we can get this thing stuff done, the better. Which isn't always a bad thing by any means, but it's kind of a tricky proposition. So it has its upside of getting things done. But when it doesn't leave time for other people to influence, it means you are on your own. You are isolated. And you're missing out on a great opportunity to add value and to avoid mistakes by gaining information and ideas from other people who have different perspectives. And then the, the not bringing closure to something means people are still might still want to be influencing decisions that have already been made. Um, but let folks know when, if you've asked them for input, get back to them and let them know what happened to that input because you're not going to be able to please everybody and and you're going to be able to use some of the information but let them know what decision got made and why so they can move from there to the next opportunity to influence and not just be stuck in that place wondering um, if they're still supposed to be influencing that decision so bringing closure allows people to see what there is to focus on now and in fact it even encourages people to influence at the appropriate time, so the more you can uh, create the environment uh, for the timing and the um, genuine interest in what people are thinking, and you know the same goes for for you. If you are trying to influence, then then ask those questions about what is the appropriate timing, what what the, what are the rules of the game here that we're playing, so I know when my input is going to be desired and and how I can um, provide information to you that I think will really help you with the final decision.
0: That's helpful to, to kind of know and to provide that structure for people. I, I think you're exactly right on that. So as we're kind of playing or going through the rest of um, kind of wrapping this up, you know, I'd love to know, how do you see this playing out in our organization? And what what are the impacts of having this this positive influence kind of in the way that you've described today?
1: Well, I think creating a positive environment for influencing is just a great time saver. You know, why is it that we always, we never have time to deal with an issue, but we always find the time to clean up the problems that are created because we didn't do that. And it's because we have to, we have to clean up the messes. Well, if we can prevent that from happening in the first place, uh, we can find the time to create that positive environment it it takes an intentional effort and practice to be effective you can't just take this on academically and said okay I understand I know how I can be more influential now you've got to try it out so if if you're committed to being an influencer then make that publicly known and again that might be telling just one other person that this is what I'm working on will you help me stay true to that And so you're learning from it and, and taking it on and making it a reliable skill is going to accelerate if you've got somebody who's helping keep you accountable to it. So when you take the time to learn from others, in other words, truly listening to learn from them, you seek out both what they're committed to and what they're worried about. And knowing that It will help shape your response to something that's more effective in the long run. And what that means to me is less frustration and getting to better solutions faster. If you you set up an environment where people feel good about the opportunity to influence and you recognize the value of being influenced by others, you're going to get something much bigger out of that. And and, and you know another adage, (laughs) the sum of the whole is greater than the sum of its parts. So playing out in an organization, you wanna create that environment where influencing happens in two directions all the time, back and forth, back and forth.
0: I love that. So as we're kind of wrapping up here, I just wanna get your opinion on a question that I ask every guest on the show, which is what do you think it means to raise the bar in the field?
1: Yeah, that's a, it's a great question. You know, I think it first means raising your own bar for performance and adding value. And I, I think I've probably conveyed that in what I've been saying. It always comes back to what's going on inside of me. How, do, how can I make this difference? Because I'm really the only person that I can control. Uh, but then bringing your team along with it. So it's, it's a process, really. In other words, you can't just say raise the bar and watch it rise. You've got to create the environment for it. So, goals have to be announced, people have to see themselves in it, and you've got to have that common future that everybody's going for. Um, You know, one one thing that we've done at at Greenplay that I'm reminded of when I say that is through our performance review process. um, You know, we're looking to raise the bar for everybody all the time. So we use a typical 5 point scale when we have these performance evaluations like most other people do but but we set a new expectation for every planning period. So a newcomer is evaluated based on the expectations for a newcomer. You know, it's you got to learn the ropes, you got to figure out what's going on here, you got to get comfortable. But then we raise the bar for what we expect for the next planning period. And so we keep the three out of a five point scale as a reasonable score, the one we expect and use the fours and fives to highlight above and beyond efforts and ones and twos to highlight areas that need attention. So it makes the process itself much more relevant to producing good work and and great work, (laughs) but you don't get stuck with an expectation that you work your way up to a five and then all of a sudden you have no room for further movement. And you have disappointment, you know, in people who aren't getting fives, and, and we've just set it up differently because we're continually moving that bar. I think in the field as a whole, we're, we're definitely not without challenges as the world around us is changing. Uh, in my career, I saw our relationship to wellness and public health as a bar raiser. ADA compliance and employing more business-like practices were bar raisers. And that's just to name a few, but now we have things like diversity and equity and response to the pandemic and natural disasters and expectations for more collaborative efforts like partnerships with libraries. I mean, all these things are raising the bar for us. So it means keeping ourselves relevant in the eyes of others. And um, those others are our constituents, our policymakers, our funders, our partners, all those people it takes to be successful. And for us, that means change and change can be scary. So it, it helps, I think, to recognize that it's not so much that people don't like change, it's the fear of the unknown. What, what's coming? They don't wanna give up what they have. You know, They're comfortable with it. They know the rules of the game. They, they kind of know if I do this, this is gonna happen. Um, but they don't wanna give that up unless they know what's gonna take its place. And so we have to do the best job we can of creating and describing what that new future is going to look like so that they can let go of that past because we can't both change and stay the same at the same time. So raising the bar means keeping ourselves relevant.
0: That is so lovely. And Chris, I just want to thank you for your perspective and all, I feel like your entire career, the way that you presented it here and the lessons that you learned are so, so important to young professionals, up and coming leaders and established professionals to remember how we, how we influence and how we unintentionally alienate others. And I think it's just such an important lesson that we need to continue to remind ourselves of and um, I just, I know that I learned a lot from this conversation I <laughs> hope that others can too. So if someone, you know, resonated with your message today, what's the best way for them to stay in touch with you? Uh,
1: you know, I'm always open to emails, phone calls, you know, whatever it takes. And I, uh, I don't know if you're looking for a, what those are, but um, Chris D at greenplayllc.com. Or pick up the phone and call me, 303-870-8674. One of the things I learned along the way was develop your network. And that means you got people you can just pick up the phone and call and ask questions of. And I've always been open to that and hope people would do that. Awesome.
0: All right. Well, thank you so much for being on the show. And until next time, let's talk parks.